Won't you pray with me with the words of Psalm chapter 5? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my King. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. But I, through the abundance of the steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. And all God's people said, Amen. This morning we're continuing our series of praying life, 40 days of prayer. I want to ask this morning... How do you pray when your words are dull, lifeless, powerless? How do you pray when you don't know the words to use? After the 9-11 attacks, with a nation in shock and dismay, a worship service was held in National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Psalm 46, Psalm 27... Psalm 23, we're all read. If by and large, Scripture is God's record of Him speaking to us, and the Psalms are recorded prayers of us speaking back to God the words that He's already given us. The Psalms were the first book printed in North America, the Bay Psalm Book of 1644. The Psalms inspire a courageous living out of the faith like no other. Martin Luther was actually lecturing for two years before he posted his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Castle. In their power to fuel our imagination, to give us and provide for us true words to pray to God, the Psalms are unmatched. In fact, centuries ago, Athanasius, a third century theologian held that the distinctive nature of the Psalms lies in their ability to affect and mold a person. How does that happen? How do the Psalms affect and mold us to live for Jesus Christ under the image of God? That happens as we pray the Psalms. A prayerful reading. As you're reading the Psalms, you pray back to God these words that He gave to us. So how the Psalms teach us to pray? The Psalms are censor-free, completely immediate. No censors needed. No passing these prayers through any purification filters. If there is sludge in the pipes, like there is often here in our beach community, sludge is coming all the way through in your prayers. The Psalms are censor free. They teach you how to pray with authenticity. Second, the Psalms are concrete. The first sermon I ever preached at age 16 was on a Psalm. And I urged the congregation with all my 16 years of wisdom to pray with specificity, polite, 
passionless, generalized prayers is not the prayers that are recorded in the Psalter. You see, you have to incarnate and live within your prayers. The Psalms teach us that like the incarnation, when God became human, you have to incarnate your experience in prayer. You have to live inside your prayers. This is when prayer becomes exciting. It goes from being dull and a duty from being a passionate, exciting activity. Remember these psalms, they were song. And in the singing, there is a vocalization. There is an owning of an experience in prayer. And in so doing, there is an emancipation by doing so. If you have trouble leading a praying life, say your prayers out loud. If you want to pray like the Psalter. Third, the Psalms are conflictual. Hatred and anger and rage. Somehow all these prayers are okay in the presence of God. Did you know that God is big enough to handle your rage, your anger, and your hatred? Life is a conflicted space, a battle. There are enemies, there is exile, there is mourning, there is grief, and it's all okay. Israel conducts a war of language against her enemies, and sometimes her enemy is God himself. The psalmist is not praying sentimental prayers simply to give the prayer what you might call a romantic emotional boost with God, right? When life becomes a battle, prayer becomes a language of direct assault, which is both psychologically honest and spiritually authentic. It's right where we live, day in and day out. Fourth, the Psalms are hopeful. You might say, Pastor, why does not the fourth one also begin with a C? Well, I couldn't think of one. Conviction of a new world or order maybe gets at the point. The Psalms usher you into a world wherein God makes all things new. Rage, hurt, anger. As they are vocalized and sung, do a surprising thing in our soul. Suddenly, hope begins to spill forth in our life, in our prayers. There is a hope in the actual praying. God must keep his promises, we remind him. God, you are a covenant God after all. God's past actions, deliverance from exodus, restoration from exile, remind you of a future hope. Though there's weeping for a night, what? Hope comes in the morning. That is how you pray the Psalms. The Psalms teach us that praying should be censor-free, concrete, conflictual, and hopeful. This is not a dull activity, but a, a haranguing, getting after God in passionate words. And the Psalms give you a language to do just that. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, suggests that the Psalms help us move with God through a maturing faith, through different seasons or Stages of life and faith. Faith number one, being securely oriented to being painfully disoriented. We think that this is a step back in faith, in life, in the spiritual journey. It's actually 
a gigantic step forward if you would pray through that disorientation. Because it leads you to being in the act of prayer surprisingly reoriented. And so the problem of prayer and the problem of praying along with the book of the Psalms in particular is that most of the Psalms, where do they live? They live between the tension and the hope of faith number two and three, right? The Psalms use language of painful disorientation. And then because of the struggle in prayer, because of worship, what happens to the prayer? What happens to the psalmist? They come out the other side with a surprising reorientation to life, to joy, to the presence of God. Because get this, what? The psalmist has been in the presence of God. Sometimes the situation, how could it possibly change just in the prayer? Something changes in our souls as we pray the Psalms. Yet much of our language that we use on a day-to-day basis is being rooted in being securely oriented. We love to live at faith number one. And I have to tell you, I am both a product and now a participant in this social experiment we now call suburban America, right? And so I'm not, if you live there, I also live there, right? This great social experiment arose after the chaos and upheaval of World War II, where people longed to find a peaceful place of solace and refuge in the modern-day promised land. In a modern-day promised land. That's actually a quote from a book on suburbia. Some of you are old enough to remember Leave It to Beaver, 1957 to 1963. I saw the reruns, right? Or The Wonder Years, 1988 to 1993. Was life chaotic and a struggle? No. The only struggle was, can this guy get the cute girl, right? In the neighborhood. These TV shows depicted life for the most part as being securely oriented. And that's the whole point of suburbia. I wonder if we could go back 250 years and show our ancestors pictures of the most prosperous nation in the world. This is how you, your, 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 what's the, the, the difference between ancestors? Descendants, thank you. This is participatory this today, just like the Psalms. This is how your, your forebears are now living. Can you get the picture? Great progress. Here's a picture of suburban America on every street corner. McDonald's, Taco Bell. Individualism, consumerism, homes all in a row. Let me get the next slide. This is what our ancestors looked forward to with such joy and glee, right? And so the Psalms use language that is not safe and cozy. Rather, the Psalms use language that is abrasive. Psalms use language that is dangerous. You might even say incendiary. Our language, compared to the Psalter, is tamed and dull, often unoriginal. And Walter Brueggemann noted that 
Being securely oriented does not produce great prayer or powerful song. Isn't that interesting? Somehow, when I go to McDonald's and Taco Bell, that doesn't produce great prayer other than, Lord, may my cholesterol not go up so much. Can I not die of a heart attack right now, right? So the first way that the Psalms help us to pray is that prayerfully reading the Psalms, appropriating them as our prayers and our language before God, is that praying the Psalms liberates our language to move from cozy security to passionate expression before God. We might pray, Lord, I'm tired and exhausted. The psalmist gives us words to use. The psalmist says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my chest. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, whatever that is, right? My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. We pray, Lord, I'm sad. The psalmist helps us pray every night. I flood my bed with my tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My tears have been my food day and night. We pray, Lord, I can't take it anymore. Life is too hard. Psalmist liberates our language. My enemies trample me all day long. I lie in the midst of lions. Let me tell you that every missionary who has ever lived in Africa probably will tell you what they miss, they miss what the geography did to their prayer life. The geography of of a place affects our spirituality of prayer. That's why many people, for instance, pray best when they're out in nature. In Africa, every day, right when I woke up, I actually prayed to God before I moved. Lord, thank you that no one came into the house last night with a machete. Lord, thank you that we have electricity today. I submit to you that praying the Psalms might be the perfect spiritual antidote to a domesticated, cozy suburbia. The Psalms unleash our language. And so if our language has flatlined, if our language with God has become dull, if our language has become deadened, the Psalms liberate our prayer language. These Psalms, these are passionate prayers, fierce prayers, complaining prayers, vengeful prayers, praising prayers. And so if suburbia represents for many a secure, cozy, domesticated existence, then the language we use is often reflective of our geography. Often our language is too secure, too cozy, too domesticated. But you and I know, if we are honest, that suburbia is a cover-up. Marriages are crumbling and under stress. People are hurting. Our children and students are feeling lost and alone. Hopelessness is up. Depression is up. Addictions are up to opioids. All here in the supposedly suburban America, a securely oriented place. And so praying the Psalms, what do they do for your soul? 
Praying the Psalms won't let you participate in the cover-up, at least before God. And I love what Walter Brueggemann says about the Psalms. He says metaphors, these metaphors in the Psalms are not packaged announcements. Rather, they are receptive vehicles waiting for a whole world of experience. Plunge yourself into the metaphors, into the poetry of the psalmist, and suddenly your prayer life begins to flourish. You are given words, you are given metaphors, you are given passions that you might not have brought before God in prayer if you weren't praying the psalms. Have you ever had the chance to meet a poet? I mean a true, honest, flesh and blood poet. Lisa and I, in 2012, in Edinburgh, Scotland, we were invited to a very small dinner party of about 12 people. We're the only Americans. I'm not sure how we got the invitation. But we actually had the chance to meet a living, the living poet laureate of Scotland. Talk about an interesting night, right? Conversation, amazing. The metaphor and the passion off the charts. This poet, she was a ball of energy, hair all flying everywhere, rhetoric. We came home very late at night with two young children, and we were still energized. Her energy, her passion, the way she used her language gave us language and passion. We wanted to live life to the full, like this poet laureate seemed to do. Probably helped by a few uh, uh, scotch drinks, but that's beside the point, right? This is what the Psalms can do for our prayer life. If we don't pray the Psalter, trying to domesticate it and deaden it, then the Psalter holds out for us a possibility of enlarging your prayer life before God. Second, praying the Psalms liberates prayer from a domestic intercom to a wartime walkie-talkie and reminds us that life is... War. John Piper puts it like this. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Do you like that? We can't know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. He says it is not surprising that prayer malfunctions. When we try to make it a domestic intercom, get the image, to call upstairs for more comforts In the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of God advances in the world. What did Paul command us to do? Put on the full armor of God. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not what? Waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In other words, life is war and prayer is a wartime instrument. We are to take up arms against the world, the flesh, the devil. You are in a war, Christian. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, take up the sword of the spirit, which is what? The Word of God. 
It's the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. It's the book of Psalms. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Notice how the Word and the prayer are closely packed in the armor of God. Why does prayer misfire so much for us? Because Christians do not realize that life is war. And that prayer is a wartime instrument. That the kingdom of God may come in our midst. That it may come in my life, in my family, in my church, in my community, in my nation. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. As Jesus taught us to pray. And so the Psalms are a stark reminder that life is war. Praying the Psalms reminds us of our being painfully disoriented. You can't participate in the cover-up of suburbia. It's the perfect spiritual antidote for our time. So, so let me give you three metaphors from the Psalms that remind us that life is war. When you say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know the words. Jump in to these metaphors and just begin to pray. Here we go. First image of life as war in the Psalms is being trampled by our enemies. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. Or as the psalmist puts Psalm 56, take my sight, O God. I'm getting kicked around, stomped on every single day. Psalm 59, deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And so the beautiful thing about praying these psalms is that the metaphor is not fixed. The great majority, I would say probably 85% of the time in the Psalter, we have no idea who the enemy is or what exactly is doing the trampling. And so these metaphors are pregnant with anticipation, waiting for you to pray them in your own life, just as Israel came to the temple for hundreds of years and continued to pray these same psalms through different experiences of life. Life is war. Your enemy might be sin. Your enemy might be addiction. Your enemy might be busyness. Your enemy might be isolation and loneliness. Life is war, so you have to pray. And so being trampled by enemies results in tears. Through praying the psalm, you own the emotion of being trampled. Psalm 56, record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? It's calling God to an account. Where are you? Pay attention to my tears. And so first, being trampled by enemies leads to a place of tears, which then puts you in a particular predicament, a location of being in the pit or in Sheol. This is the third image of painful disorientation that we all experience in life. In what way, as you go to God in prayer, is life crushing me? What ways do I find it difficult to hope that I've 
can pray about lots of different things, but I won't pray about this because it's too hard. And I don't have any more hope that God would actually change this. What did Joseph's brothers do when they left him for dead? They left him in a pit. You see, the pit is a metaphor from being cut off from life. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down, what? To the pit. Life is not lived in secure orientation. That's only a cover-up. Prayer is authentic and candid before God. The word Sheol is often used in the Psalms. Now, this does not mean exactly hell in the Old Testament, but rather a powerless, gray existence, removed from joy, removed from life, removed from the presence of God. Psalm 88, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pent. I am a man who has no strength. Pray through the images of war in your prayer closet. But these three images of war, these images of painful disorientation in the Psalms are balanced. Because as we pray through the difficulties of our own lives, as we are truly candid before God in prayer, and that's how God urges you to come to Him, These images of war are balanced by a surprising reorientation of life and joy, anticipated victory based on the promises of God. Praying the Psalms places our hearts, within our hearts, the possibility of a surprising reorientation. Instead of being trampled, we take the initiative. We're not passive. We can be found first clapping our hands with praise. And many times in the Psalms, Get this, the clapping and the joy precedes the victory. There's no victory. The enemies are about, but the psalmist begins to feel joy by the clapping of the hands. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Psalm 47. And when the psalmist expresses joy, all of creation joins in. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Life in the prayers is being reoriented. A surprising way. And the result is instead of being trampled and shedding tears, now you're you're brought to a, a table where there's food and there's a banquet. Through praying the Psalms, you begin to recognize slowly but surely how God tangibly cares for you and blesses you. Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not that the enemies are no longer there, but suddenly you are brought in to enjoy God's presence even in the midst of enemies, even in the midst of being trampled down by life. Psalm 81, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Oh Lord, thank you for reminding me of your great deliverance. Then he says, open your mouth and I will fill it. You're at a table of God's blessing as you're in prayer. And then you're able to remind yourself who God is, that he is a refuge, 
a strong tower, a rock. He longs to hide you under eagles' wings, to shelter you from the storms of life. And you say, well, it doesn't feel like I'm being sheltered. It doesn't feel like you're a rock. Pray through the tough places and something begins to bubble up in your soul. The truth of God's Word reminds you of this truth when you can't remind yourself. Psalm 61, I call as my heart grows faint. When? When you're securely oriented? No. I call as my heart grows faint. Then he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Clapping your hands. Eating at a table. God being a refuge, a rock, a tower. Brings you to a place that acknowledges that even though life is war, God is still good to you. How can you live within that tension? Life is war. God is good. You can only do so in prayer. And if you find it hard to do so, pray through the Psalms. Read the Psalms slowly. Begin to incarnate. Live with the psalmist on the edge of your humanity. Pray the Psalms. Third, praying the Psalms liberates you from centering your life in the small story and moves you to live in the big story that God is telling us. If all you live is in your small story, if the only stories you uh, incarnate are the stories being told on CNN or Fox News or for me on ESPN.com, if the only stories that you hear are on Facebook, you're living in a very small story. And so what do the psalmist do? Lift up your head, O Israel. There is a bigger story that God is telling. You are part of this big story. Your small story happens between the cradle and the grave. Even if you're given a hundred years, it's still a very, very small story compared to God's big story that he is trying to tell. And he's longing to pull your small story up into the big story. Here's where the action is. Here's where the joy is. Here's where the life is. If you're only living in your small story, what are you going to feel? Lots of pressure. You better get life right. You only have a small story to tell it. You better do it. People are depending on you. Pressure. When you live in the God story, who's the main actor? God, not you. You begin to pray, Lord, thank you for inviting me into this big story. I can't believe it. The invitation is amazing. Here it is. Here's a big story that we're going to participate in very short time. Liberate you. And so as you read the Psalms, you begin to, to recount creation. Oh, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. The wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. You get reminded of God's action in creation. Praying the Psalms reminds you of the Exodus event. He performed wonders in the land of Egypt. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. Oh, Lord, thank you for reminding me of your redemption. 
Praying the Psalms reminds you of the exile. The people of God experiencing a dislocation, a geography that wasn't familiar to them. A geography where they found it hard to pray. Does that sound familiar? They were, you know, like, it's like the, 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 before there was Taco Bell and McDonald's, they were there in Babylon, also having a hard time praying. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? As you pray the Psalms, you begin to slowly live in the big story that God is telling. Creation, Jacob, Moses, King David, temple, exile, restoration, Lord. With these kind of activities, our prayer is unleashed to live in that big story with God. And so if you're not praying with the Word of God close at hand, I imagine you're bound to get frustrated with prayer because you're probably only praying about the small story. Your words come to an end. Your words are dull. Your words are unimaginative. And I say that not as condemnation, but as your brother in the journey of prayer. Read the Psalms. Pray through them slowly. Be enmeshed in God's story. And suddenly you begin to realize that your words, your prayers are echoing God's words and God's prayers. Let's pray. We'll pray using Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise The Lord, praise the Lord. And all God's people said,